You can now find all of C-SPAN's nonfiction-focused podcasts in one place, the C-SPAN Bookshelf feed. Follow now, and you'll get all of C-SPAN's podcasts that are nonfiction book-related every week. I'm Shannon. And I'm Rachel. And as part of the podcast team here at C-SPAN, we wanted to make it easy for our nonfiction book lovers to access all of our offerings in one place. Hear from authors like Kadada Williams on her book, I Saw Death Coming, Joan Biscubic and her latest, Nine Black Robes, or Neil King, who shared his walking journey from D.C. to New York City in his book, American Ramble. Featured programs will include Book Notes Plus, Q&A, Afterwards, and About Books. You can follow the C-SPAN Bookshelf feed wherever you get your podcasts. He was born in New Orleans, Louisiana. He's a graduate of Yale. Now lives in the Washington, D.C. area. He's a first-time biographer, C.W. Goodyear. The book is President Garfield, From Radical to Unifier. Garfield was America's 20th president, who took office on March 4, 1881. His time in office lasted only 200 days. Garfield was assassinated by Charles Guiteau in a Washington, D.C. train station at the corner of 6th and Pennsylvania Avenue on July 2, 1881. Mr. Goodyear has written a full-life biography of James Garfield from the years he grew up in Ohio through his generalship in the Civil War and his 17 years in the U.S. House of Representatives. C.W. Goodyear, first book. What's it like? Uh, It was a long journey. It was about five years it it took to put this this work together. And uh, I couldn't have asked for a more compelling subject, and I couldn't have asked for a more interesting time in which to be telling President Garfield's story. In your acknowledgments, you uh, thank Alice Mayhew and Mike Hooglin, who I <clears throat> who are have passed on. Mm. But I want to read back to you what you wrote. They each heard an unusual book idea about an unusual American president from an unusual author. Dissect that one. Why are yeah, you no. <laughs> why are you unusual? Well, uh Let's see. I think for a variety of reasons, I'd start with saying that presidential biographies are not typically written by somebody in my age range. Most people who are doing authoritative presidential works, there tends to be a bit of a uh, deference to uh, the more established figures in the American literary tradition. How old old are you? uh, I am 29. So this was uh, quite an early start. So I categorize that as being rather unusual. And so just from an individual standpoint, I, I, I could think of no better way to phrase how this got started with than with an unconventional idea. And then the idea of going with Garfield in particular was something of a, it was a surprise to the people that I was initially approaching with this idea. And that included, by the way, the legendary Alice Mayhew, uh, I've actually been told that I was the last author that she ended up signing to and, Simon and & Schuster. And she was where and what did she do? She was uh, she was at Simon & Schuster and she was basically the reigning figure of American biographical editing. Uh, it's 
there she was a foundational figure and then she ended up becoming a leading one and uh you can't really shake a stick at uh modern american presidential biography in the last 50 years without hitting somebody who owed their 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 work and their success to alice's uh work and uh she was a bit of a hard sell for this book from the very beginning so the reason that she is first in my acknowledgments is because she took a tremendous uh risk and i'm very grateful for her and what makes james garfield an unusual president well it goes back to how we as a country remember our presidents. Typically, when we think of Americans we want to learn, American presidents we want to learn about or write about, uh, for natural reasons, our society defaults to asking ourselves, what did this person do in the presidency? And uh, where is their monument today? And from those very natural points of view, Garfield measures out fairly poorly. Uh, he was uh, the second president to be assassinated. And he was assassinated within his uh, first year of office. Actually, he was shot uh, three months after uh, inheriting the presidency. And so when you look at his historical record as it stands right now, uh, typically what you'll see is a very short uh, entry, which is James Garfield uh, died in his first year of office. And that's typically how historians have treated him. Uh, My angle on his legacy was rather different. And it had kind of an unusual origin story. I think every biographer and historian uh, write in some way, shape, or form about the times that they live in. So about five to six years ago, I was writing in the D.C. area, and I was interested in finding a period of American history where the conditions of our time were somewhat comparable to today's. But somebody was resisting the 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 sturm and drang the the elemental partisan forces of the day and trying to keep uh the great machine of our government together functioning and uh, i was naturally drawn to reconstruction and the gilded age those are the periods that people often compare to our own these days and when i was studying uh, in the library of congress and in existing works the major events of that period i found the same person Uh, floating in the background of most every major event throughout that time. And he was also somebody who everybody was saying vaguely nice things about. And that struck me as an unusual, unusual pair of conditions that were met simultaneously. And that person was James Garfield. And so then the deeper I dug, the more I got past that initial entry of uh, president for six months died tragically the closer I got to what I now believe to be one of the most compelling and complex political ascents of American history, not just the 19th century, but American history overall. And that's the story of James Garfield, who was uh, the last president to be born in a log cabin, but ended up being, as I mentioned before, the second assassinated. What did you study at Yale and why did you come to D.C.? I was a global affairs major. Uh, so it, essentially, international relations run through a synonym machine. And uh, I actually came to D.C. because of a professor of mine, uh, General Stanley McChrystal. In my senior year, he liked my writing. And towards the end of my time at Yale, 
I, he asked me to come to DC to write a book with a friend of his, Chris Fossil. So I was drawn to DC for writing. And as I developed my skills as a writer, because you only really learn how to write well uh, after leaving an educational uh, background, uh, I found myself in a place of power and geography that made sense to me for my, my interests. And that was how that got established. In your acknowledgments, your last paragraph, finally, I must express my heartfelt appreciation to Edmund Morris for doing an mm. embarrassingly starstruck young biographer the courtesy of telling him how hard this work would be. Yeah. We, we knew Edmund Morris very well here because of all of his work on Reagan and Theodore Roosevelt. Where did you meet him and what was the circumstances that led you to write that? Yeah, I met him in Kent, Connecticut. He actually doesn't live, or he didn't live, I'm sorry to say, too far from my parents up there. And so after my first book came out, this was about 2017, uh, I was in New England helping sell that book. And uh, we were connected personally. And by that point, of course, I knew of him as a biographical icon. And I'd seen his work as being a, 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 a just, it, it, was as, it was like turning on a light in a dark room is the impact that I described his method and his prose had on my vision for writing and the type of books that I'd like to write. And so he did me the, the great service of not only reading what I've written already, but uh, meeting with me in private. And uh, we had a fairly friendly relationship. And the first thing he said to me from the very beginning was, uh, biography is not what you want to get get into if you're looking for uh an easy line of writing or even necessarily a successful one and he was very frank with how hard this work would be when i started down this path and uh to this day and he unfortunately passed very shortly into this literary adventure right now uh his his works still occupy an exalted shelf right behind right beside my my writing nook and uh, I've now thumbed through his uh, Dutch and his The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt copies enough. I've actually had to sellotape the the, uh, the spines to keep them intact. Uh, but no, he was a terrific inspiration. And so when it came to time to wrap up the acknowledgments, uh, you know, beginning with Alice and then ending with Edmund, it seemed like the right thing to do by both of those people. What was your first book? My first book was a book called One Mission that I co-authored with an associate of General McChrystal's. And it was about applying the leadership and organizational practices they developed in the war on terror, specifically in Iraq, to uh, modern organizational challenges. And uh, so Chris and I worked on that, and that was released in 2017. Paint a picture of this president you write about, James Garfield. Mm. He was a he was an irrationally reasonable man in a in an increasingly irrational time. Uh, James Garfield's fifty years of life spanned what I still consider to be the most uh, compelling and timely period of our history relative to today's. He was born in eighteen thirty one in a log cabin, and he was. Uh, then raised by a single mother. His father passed when he was only about two years old. 
And then what followed was this mix of the fulfillment of an American dream story and then the story of a fundamentally progressive and idealistic man rising to power in America through antebellum, the Civil War, uh, Reconstruction, and the very beginning of the Gilded Age. And uh, as his power grew, as his influence in society grew, he went through this very interesting evolution from being this early progressive to really a master of politics as the art of the possible. And so alongside this remarkable political career, which Garfield, I should back up, he was in Congress from 1863 to 1881. So he had a span of time in which he was really able to witness uh, the transformation of the country from wartime into a, uh, a an unstable peace for a uniquely long time. 20 years is not what we'd think to be a long congressional career by modern standards, but back in that time, it certainly was. Uh, so you had a very interesting political ascent that ends in his assassination in the presidency. On a personal level, he might be the most intellectual person to ever... Uh, occupy the White House. This this was a man who, you know, again, starting with very little means, uh, was able to practice as a Supreme Court attorney, in addition to his congressional career, who was capable in multiple languages. Uh, famously, as an anecdote, he was able to write Greek and Latin with Greek in his left hand, Latin in his right, uh, simultaneously on different pages. And he also authored an original proof of the Pythagorean theorem in his time in Congress. And to quote another president, actually, about uh, President Garfield, and, you know, presidents aren't liable to be complimenting each other too well. But Rutherford Hayes once wrote that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but uh, the truth is that no man ever started so low who accomplished so much in all of our history as James Garfield, uh, not even Abraham Lincoln or Benjamin Franklin. So he was this interesting amalgamation of personal ascent and ability mixed with very combustive political times. But atop all of that, his political character, uh, Garfield, his his reputation in Reconstruction era Washington was of a unanimously personally popular man and a political pragmatist. He was the last man everybody in Washington of that time could really get along with. Uh, Democrats and Republicans all had stories of him uh, extending these kind gestures, these friendly notes in the middle of personal strife. He was a quiet, diligent force holding the country together in a very uh, divisive time. And that all struck me as a very compelling figure to write about. Every chapter at the top has a quote from Shakespeare, which was in his diary. And I want to go to the last chapter, which is obviously about his death. Um, mm. Let us not burden our remembrance with the heaviness that's gone from Shakespeare's The Tempest. Obviously, mm. a couple of questions. Why Shakespeare at the top of each of your chapters and why that particular quote near the end of the book? Yes, that was a pretty easy editorial decision from the very beginning. When I was doing my work in the Garfield papers of the Library of Congress, what was nice from a research perspective is that he was a hoarder. So, you know, he kept everything uh, on deck. 
But when I was in his diary for the year of 1878, for some reason that Garfield himself never never elaborated on, he was the minority leader of the House at this time. His next post would be the presidency, although he didn't know it. He began each day with a different Shakespearean quote. And it goes back to what I mentioned earlier as, as him being this phenomenal intellect. Uh, he was a tremendous fan of Shakespeare, and he decided for that year to make that the centerpiece of his diary. Uh, and so when it came to my turn to write about his life, knowing what I did about the way he, that he diaried in the year of 1878, I thought it would be a natural uh, writing method to use those quotes to headline each chapter in a way that uh, that had some symbolism with the nature of the chapter itself. Now, as for that quote, let us not burden our remembrance with the heaviness that's gone. Uh, Garfield's life, and especially the last three months of his life, given his assassination, he did not die immediately. He he died of the infection to his wound rather than the gunshot. Uh, his political career was about the management of terrible crises, and he was an increasingly vexed figure as time went on. But for the last three months of his life, he died perhaps as poorly as any president could. He was uh, shot in a D.C. train station, one that no longer stands. And the physical and emotional toll of then slowly dying of an infection really wore away at him. And not only that, it wore away at the country. Uh, for the better part of three months, the entire nation was unsure about whether the president of the United States would pull through this attempt on his life. And the vacillations of the nation uh, throughout that experience. And then the terrible suffering of Garfield himself, often at the hands of his doctors. It seemed uh, to me that it, to leave the readers with this uh, lasting image of somebody in terrible pain who more likely than not is not going to fulfill their political potential. I wanted to give a sort of reprieve, a last moment in the sun for our subject. And so the the epilogue is showing the unveiling of the Garfield uh, Memorial outside Cleveland. It still stands there today and it's his, it's his final resting place and it's the final resting place of much of his family. And it's this moment of celebration. So from an authorial perspective, I wanted to very carefully select a, a, a quote that came from our subject's mouth, or at least from his pen, channeling, uh, ch channeling a, a, a poet's sentiment that mattered a lot to him in that moment. And then using that to kind of to, to lift the experience of the reader outside of this very dark moment into one of more wistful commemoration. The name Lucia Gilbert Calhoun. Yes. What, what role did she play in his early life? Yes, Lucretia or Crete, as he preferred to call her. Crete was... I, I, was, the, I was talking about his Calhoun. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Uh, but it's all connected, so go ahead it, and explain. It, it is all connected. Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Lucia was uh, actually uh, a mistress of his, briefly during the Civil War. She was somebody who he encountered. He was this young hotshot brigadier general. As a matter of fact, Garfield was the youngest brigadier general in fighting in the Union Army during the Civil War. And he was on this upward ascent uh, through 
American public life. He ha- he had or he was on the verge of being uh, put into Congress as the youngest member of Congress. But professionally, he was in flux and he was this young, volcanically ambitious American who was married, but ultimately had begun his marriage to Lucretia uh, uh, in difficult circumstances, Lucretia being his his lifelong wife. And uh, the separation that he felt from his family combined with the pressures of war and then this fundamental insecurity he had about himself and his political career, it led him into this uh, forbidden romance with a New York journalist. And that was the significance of that woman in his life. What impact did it have on his marriage? It ended up being the turning point, actually, believe it or not. He had a crisis of conscience towards the end of the Civil War, where he confessed to his actual life, Lucretia Garfield, that he had had this uh, this this fling with a uh, w- with this journalist in New York, and uh, it was a very unlikely turnaround. But the force of confronting that indiscretion ended up being the foundation for uh, what was ultimately a very successful and happy marriage in the long run with Lucretia. So his his romantic life was complicated, and it was very unusual because for somebody who had built their public profile and who still is remembered today as being this uh, this ethical, upstanding, and reasonable political figure. That's how Garfield's remembered. The, the fact that he had had this dalliance at all was, uh, was surprising, honestly, from a historical perspective. Where did you find the information you passed along to us that he had a tough time admitting to Crete or Lucretia that he liked being married? Yes, yes, he did. He at he Lucretia was somebody who he encountered very early on in his life. They actually attended the same school together in rural Ohio. And his Garfield's primary concern from a young age was finding a partner in life who would be able to stick with him throughout the adventures to follow. He had this tremendous sense of destiny. And so but as you know we all can probably acknowledge basing a marriage purely on the suitability of somebody for the longer arc of their life uh that's kind of a difficult thing to do when they're very young and so for the first five years of the marriage between lucretia and james garfield it was remarkably troubled they spent barely any time together and uh meanwhile garfield was building himself politically into this uh figure of the time. He was a state senator, a college president, and a preacher in their area of Ohio all simultaneously. And all of that gave him very little time for his for, with his wife, and she knew that uh, from the very beginning. Uh, and at one point, he did admit that their marriage was a mistake, and it was right in that period, right before the Civil War, where he was this uh, late 20s politician, academic, uh, religious figure in the area. Where Lucretia was discontent with his inability to be home, they had a daughter by this point, and it was enough where there was this confrontation between them. And generally, it was a very it was a miserable marriage at the very beginning. And ironically, they're able to redeem it for the rest of their lives together. But I that that specific note you're mentioning, where he admits that their marriage was a mistake, that was uh, a scrap of paper that I found in the James Garfield papers of the. Uh, 
Library of Congress. And so that, that, that took a little bit of digging. How many letters were available, both from him and from his wife, for you to oh, read? Oh, my God. The, too, too, many to, too many to read thoroughly. It was a good opportunity for me to defer to uh, Bob Caro's you know, advice to turn every page. But when you have a limit, you need to be very economical with how you focus. All told, tens of thousands of letters, over 30,000, between assuming Garfield and his wife together. And so the, the, the challenge then became from a research perspective to filter through those and find the relevant material. And what also didn't help was the, uh, and this is something not a lot of historical researchers talk about, is uh, the handwriting. There's a very archaic handwriting back then. And so it took me quite a while visually to become fluent in the, uh, in the handwriting of James Garfield. As you were writing this book, did you have other work that you were having to do? No, this was this was essentially it. Uh, you know, to be recognized by Alice and to be given a uh, contract by Simon and Schuster, that was enough impetus for me to want to focus entirely on this subject. And uh, with the wealth of material that was available and the amount of archives located both in D.C. and then in the Ohio area, uh, I really didn't have enough time for anything else. So it was, it was a, it was a very, it, it was such a compelling subject and the conditions were just right that it was very easy to lose myself in this subject. How did a guy who grew up in a small town in Ohio, uh, who came out of a log cabin and was in a poor family, end up at Williams College in Massachusetts? I think there are a couple different components. The first of them is that Garfield, from the youngest age where he began writing, he had a volcanic ambition within him. And as soon as he encountered what little scholastic resources were available in the Western Reserve of Ohio, it was like uh, flint to a dry stack of tinder. It immediately took off. I have this quote of his that he wrote actually in his diary after an oration he gave at one of his early schools. Uh, and this is after he's been very nervous about giving this performance in front of his class, and he, he now feels enlightened on the other side of it. The ice is broken. I am no longer a cringing scapegoat, but am resolved to make a mark in the world. I know without egotism that there is some of the slumbering thunder in my soul. So this is somebody who, and he was a, he was a, he was a teenager when he wrote that. So this was somebody who, despite having to work in the fields, despite having to uh, have all manner of manual labor forced upon him by the financial resources of his family to support his single parent household. Uh, he knew that his interests and his future lay not with his hands, but with his mind and where that mind could take him. So from the very beginning, you, you have this vision of just this Horatio Alger-esque story of a young American from a blue-collar background and a hard, scrabble, rural background getting exposed to these fleeting little forms of education, having that become the accelerant to their, their life. Uh, and then the second aspect of this, how he ended up at Williams. By his early 20s, Garfield had exhausted all of the educational potential in his corner of Ohio. He had joined a school called the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute which was a religious institution. Today, it's known as Hiram College, but back then it was the Eclectic Institute. Garfield had joined it as a student 
his first job there to pay his way had been its janitor. And three terms in, the faculty decided to promote him to being a teacher as well. And so he, he wasn't a degree-holding uh, student yet, and he couldn't be at the Eclectic Institute. It was, an, it was a relatively informal school. But he had exhausted his potential, and he knew that. And he knew in order to be to, to reach his potential, he needed to go elsewhere. So he his family was originally from New England, and that that's true of all of the Western Reserve Eclectic, and uh, sorry, the Western Reserve region of Ohio. Uh, there there's a lot of Yankee stock there. That that was the natural emigration point for people leaving New England into the Midwest. They would go through the Western Reserve. So Garfield looks to New England and he looks to three schools there. He looks at Yale, he looks at Brown, and he looks at Williams College in Massachusetts. And he writes to the heads of these three institutions, Brown, Yale, and Williams. And Brown and Yale, the presidents of Brown and Yale, write back to this young Ohio boy. And they write, uh, they attach their catalog and they say, let us know, you know, if, if you'd be interested and we'd consider your application. The president of Williams, who was a man named Mark Hopkins, who was already a pretty well-known figure of that time, he writes to Garfield, uh, we, w- we would be glad to do what we can for you. And in Garfield's later retelling, that phrase, that, that, that uh, not quite supplication, but that invitation from a, a prestigious New England institution, that struck a chord in him. That, that, that ticked some part of his psyche that he hadn't felt quite stimulated yet. And so he went on to Williams, and he joined as a member of the junior class. And he was older than most of the other students, but by the time of his graduation, which was only two years later, he received the highest honor somebody who had transferred into Williams could get. And it was a very good exposure for him socially, politically, and uh, also, and eventually in terms of his uh, influence back home. Because Garfield, he, after earning his Williams degree, went back to the Western Reserve of Ohio. And all of a sudden, he was this very impressive figure that everybody already knew quite well already, but who had gone abroad from an Ohio perspective and who had uh, come back with laurels, who had these academic victories under his belt. So that was a pivotal point in his life, in his young life. More than once you say he had a big head. And the reason I bring this up is describe him physically, please. Yes, he was. So the Garfield men all tended to look the same. They had very strong stock in that way. When you look at the historical record, all Garfield men tended to be very tall. They had sandy blonde hair, which then eventually disappeared. And they were very uh, muscular. And so that was Garfield's build. He had, he was this uh, strapping six foot plus figure with uh, sandy blonde hair that then turned into receding hairline as the cover of my book shows. And he had these, the head was one physical feature that a lot of people hooked onto. And I'll return to that. But his eyes, his eyes were something that also a lot of people accentuated. They, somebody said that his lightning blue eyes, they, they, they blazed like battle lanterns lit. And it was this distinctive feature that ended up lingering with a lot of people who encountered him in life. And then afterward, I've heard uh, at least one female historian really, really, really enthuse over his eyes and the impact of that, that those have still when you see him in a photograph, his head, unfortunately, 
was the distinctive physical feature that ended up lingering with a lot of people. Uh, it, it ended up being handy for him politically because it gave everybody something to hold on to. But uh, there were times where the obsession with it and the uh, the the caricaturization of his head was kind of absurd. There's this campaign speech that I found from Frederick Douglass during the election of 1880. And this is Frederick Douglass in New York addressing a crowd of black voters, New York being a critical swing state during Garfield's presidential election of 1880. And Douglass starts out by or now he starts out, but his, the, 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 the peak of his speech, he goes that deep chested, three-story headed man, James Garfield. He, he knows he knows your struggles, you know, black men of America. And I read three-story headed, and that's when I knew that the, uh, the uh, you know, they jumped the shark a little bit with that perspective of him. But still, if you look at old cartoons of that day, it, it's the feature that was accentuated very often in columns and cartoons. Um, and actually, my editor, the editor who took over from Alice Mayhew at Simon & Schuster, uh, he finally saw a photo of Garfield partway through my work. And he wrote me this note, and I hope this isn't embarrassing him in any way. But he writes, well, he wasn't the elephant man. I, I don't understand why everybody was obsessing over this. So that was that was kind of funny. But it is a, it is a compelling tale, though, because, you know, as we all know, in presidential history, physical traits, physical characteristics, the more distinctive, sometimes the better. And Garfield's was his cranium. As you said earlier, you wrote this book primarily, not primarily, but because it somewhat reflected the era that we're in now in this country. Yes. And because you say that, I want you to talk some about Credit Mobilier and how that mm. how that looks looking back at it compared to what's going on in politics today. Yes, this was a this was an interesting industrial politics story. Uh, you know, the Reconstruction in the Gilded Age, this was when the great industrial powers of America started to awaken. And you had the rise of these figures like Andrew Carnegie and Jay Gould, the the robber barons who controlled this uh, this upstart and this this new technologically driven industry in those days, railroads. And, and the steel industry and all those supplementary industries and who are trying to use that power and that wealth as well to influence politics. So Credit Mobilier was a reflection, uh, was it was a company that was uh, founded to be a subcontractor to the Union Pacific Railroad, which was still is a major American railroad. But back then, the Union Pacific had been one of the companies that the that the U.S. government had essentially tapped and provided limited subsidies to, to bridge the continent, to create a continent-spanning network of railroads that would then serve as the, uh, the industrial backbone for the country to expand along, to expand west. Uh, the trouble from a corporate perspective was that the Union, that this wasn't a terribly profitable venture. And there was this perspective in the railroad industry at that time that the support that the U.S. government had given the railroad companies and Union Pacific was insufficient to the task of bridging the continent. And so to supplement those, the, the, that, to, to augment that point with members of Congress and other people of influence across the country, some directors of the Union Pacific Railroad had formed a subcontractor to the Union Pacific called the Credit Mobilier. 
that was responsible for the construction of several areas of the Union Pacific Line in, in the far west. And in the style of companies, uh, of contractors that were staffed and run by the people who were also running the main company, the Union Pacific, uh, the Credit Mobilier was basically bilking shareholders of the Union Pacific. And it was operating as this semi-fraudulent ring of, of uh reaping profit by under-delivering and overcharging the Union Pacific. Now, the way this connects to Congress uh, back then and today is that uh, shares in Credit Mobilier were deliberately given by its, its, uh, its managers to members of Congress. And so what you had was this situation where members of Congress were personally profiting from the uh, from the billing of a government-related uh, company, the Union Pacific, in, in a private... You're having this cycle of fraud that was essentially taking place, and the subsidies that members of Congress were voting through for the Union Pacific, those were eventually ending up in the pockets of the members of Congress themselves. They they own shares in the subcontractor that was bil- bilking the Union Pacific. And Garfield ended up being uh, one of those, and he was caught up in that ethical scandal of that time. And when the news of the Credit Mobilier scandal eventually broke, it was called the king of frauds. It was seen as this unprecedented breach in public trust by uh, members of the political establishment in Washington. And uh, that is a compelling story today because, of course, uh, when you look at the modern balance of power in Washington and the the way in which uh, many of our public servants are uh, allowed to have vested interests in the companies that their public dealings impact, you can't help but draw a comparison to that earlier time and that precedent that Credit Mobilier set. It Back then, back in Garfield's time, Credit Mobilier kicked off this period of intense public investigation of congressional inquiry, and it was used as this great political cudgel by the Democratic Party then against the Republican Party, who were who formed most of the share, uh, most of the congressional shareholders of Credit Mobilier at that time. Today, I think it's much more of a uh, bipartisan situation in terms of the vestment in uh, industries that their work impacts. But it was interesting to to delve into that time and see the connective tissue to today. What was Garfield's reaction though when he got caught? Yes, he was initially in fits of denial. What had happened was a member of Congress had approached him several years before with an offer to accept Credit Mobilier shares and not only to accept Credit Mobilier shares, but to accept dividends from those shares. Uh, And Garfield uh, met with this figure and ultimately left their meetings with sums of money. Uh, This only became clear over time. But when this scandal uh, erupted, Garfield initially denied ever meeting with this figure, and then he later reinvented his, uh, his memory of the story, or at least he creatively reinterpreted it to mean that the money that he took was a loan, not an advance on any dividends, and that he never took possession of any credit mobilier shares. So he pivoted in a very careful manner only after an initial panic, and that ended up being I think the key to his survival politically was his 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 ability to uh, 
be very selective in how he reinterpreted events only after initially panicking and sending the wrong signals to the public. But he was one of the very few figures who was able to survive uh, that stain on his reputation and go on to greater things. Credit Mobilier was resurrected during his presidential run, but it was uh, obviously not effective in holding him back from the White House. Obviously, in your book, there's a whole story on how he was chosen on the 36th ballot at the convention to be the Republican nominee, but we only have so much time, so I want to go to this. Uh, that um, in the 1880 election, he got 4,446,158 votes. William Scott Hancock, his opponent, got just a couple thousand less than that, 4,444,260, but he got Garfield got 214 uh, electoral votes, Hancock mm. won 55. It was very close. And what did that impact have on his presidency that it was so close? It actually did not end up having much of an impact on his presidency. It's it's impossible to look at the outcome of that election, that very close election of 1880, and, and significance without understanding the election that came beforehand, the election of 1876. Uh, the election of 1876 was widely seen, even in its aftermath, as having a fraudulent outcome. And uh, there was a lot of post hoc, post election uh, uh crisis management in Washington uh, in 1876 between the results of Election Day and then the eventual inauguration of President Hayes. A lot of political dealing, a lot of allegations of fraud, and even threats of the second civil, of a second civil war. And so it was, uh, uh, it was, a, it was as uh, disruptive and disastrous, I think, as a presidential election could have gone, that of 1876. And so when the election of 1880 came around, and the result was narrow, but resoundingly, from a public perspective, legitimate. Uh, that narrow uh, outcome ended up being something that a lot of the country took heart in. So the way that that impacted his presidency and the way he wielded his executive power was actually pretty narrow, other than to reflect the confidence of the public in his legitimacy as president. That was not true of his predecessor. The way it impacted, though, the balance of power in the Senate, that was much more impactful because what the very close election of 1880 produced was a perfectly balanced Senate between the parties. You had Republicans and Democrats who held an exact balance of power. And so what that meant was this vice president, the new vice president of the United States, Chester Arthur, who was picked kind of as a throwaway, and who many people dismissed as a non-entity ended up having to cast a series of very decisive ballots in the presidency, sorry, in, 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 his, in his role as president of the Senate. And, uh, but that wasn't the end of Arthur's unexpected significance. He had a lot of other developments ahead of him than being this unexpected power broker in the Senate. As you know, if you go down on the mall here in Washington, right about the National Gallery of Art, there's a plaque uh, or just a, it's kind of a storyboard sitting there telling mm -hmm. the story of the assassination by Charles Guiteau. W why did Guiteau uh, th think killing Garfield would make a difference? Well, I think the the first first thing to think about Guiteau's mind and his motivations is that he was a mentally ill man. 
And as a result, any calculus he had was going to be uh, suspect. But Guiteau's, his claimed motivations, his claimed rationality had its roots in Republican politics of the time. Guiteau identified as a stalwart. And the stalwart was stalwarts were a wing of the Republican Party that believed in the use and abuse of the patronage system, who they believed essentially in the importance of using public jobs and federal jobs as bribes and motivations for political cronies. And they believed in the importance of that system to the uh, to the overall strength of the American political structure and the and the practice of politics. So when and I should mention that Vice President Arthur was a stalwart and Garfield had picked Vice President Arthur as a as a sop, as a way of buying uh, stalwart support to to Garfield's own presidential campaign. And at that time, when Garfield made that choice, many clean government advocates were alarmed. But one of them gave this great quote for the ages, which was that uh, uh, we understand there is motivation and there, there's good cause to be to have trepidation about Chester Arthur in the vice presidential seat. But there is no reason to think that anything will happen to President Garfield that will result in Arthur's elevation to the presidency. Well, anyway, Charles Guiteau had tried and failed to get a post within the Garfield administration as one of these cronies. And in his uh, in his imbalanced calculus and in his frustration, he decided that if he killed Garfield, if he shot the president, then the new president, Chester Arthur, would be so grateful that he would give Guiteau any job in the federal bureaucracy that Guiteau wanted. And so he settled on doing that, and he stalked Garfield for quite a long stretch of time, actually several weeks, before finally cornering him in a Washington train station that no longer stands and shooting President Garfield in the back. And right beside President Garfield as this was happening was his Secretary of State, James Blaine. And then actually further off in the distance, but within eyesight, of the shooting was James Garfield's secretary of war, uh, Robert Todd Lincoln, Robert Todd Lincoln being the last surviving son of Abraham. And so Lincoln had had, secretary Lincoln had the uh, unfortunate responsibility of coordinating response to the initial shooting. And then after all of the drama was over and Garfield had been moved to the white house, he he gave this uh, very, sad quote to a journalist who was waiting outside the train station, which was, my God, how many hours of tragedy have I seen in this town? And so that really resounds. But uh, it was, Garfield's shooting was a strange, it was a strange coincidence of historical strands and just terrible, awful luck all coming together. How much could you find about Charles Guiteau and his trial and uh, eventual death. Oh, I, honestly, too much. There was too much. The 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 response, the the popular response to what he did, ended up fulfilling in great part his motivation for shooting Garfield, and it gave him great fame, or at least infamy, uh, by shooting Garfield and then and then surviving the immediate aftermath. Something that didn't happen with uh, uh, Lincoln's assassin. Uh, Guiteau became this object of popular fascination. 
and the American uh, media, uh, North and South, uh, almost couldn't help themselves but become obsessed with his story. And so he would spend uh, the entirety of Garfield's illness and then waiting for his trial in jail in Washington, giving voluminous press interviews and to journalists who were eager to hear his life story, his uh, philosophy on various public issues, uh, his likes and dislikes, his plans for the future. And they built him into this, uh, this, this object of popular, this, this peculiar mix of popular scorn and uh, fascination that, I, that, again, I thought was terribly, uh, terribly timely. And so, his, so I was able to find a tremendous amount of material about Guito and his life and how he'd led it. There's actually a, recently a biography of Guito that was just published. Its name escapes me now. But one of the things that I decided after uncovering all of this material was that I actually didn't want to name Guito in my book. I didn't want to describe him by his name because it struck me as adding on to the central problem of valorizing somebody for doing something terrible and rewarding an atrocity with attention. Uh, so I tried very hard to write of Garfield's assassination and of this assassin stalking of him without identifying the name, without without attaching a name to the figure who was lurking in the background waiting for his opportunity to kill the president. That ended up not being quite successful. When I, uh, when I submitted my manuscript, my editor, uh, Bob Bender, came in and said, you have to name him at least once. So I did. I named him at the, in the very last uh, section of my writing where I, where I talk about Guito. But I, tr- but I tried very hard to avoid it as much as I could. And you know what was also very interesting that I found out? Uh, so Guito, his trial did not go the way he intended. Uh, he was given the death penalty. And the man who was responsible for hanging Guito was a childhood friend of James Garfield. James Garfield had given this man uh, uh, the job of marshal of D.C. And he had been one of his lifelong political confidants. So that man, uh, Frederick Henry, had the tremendous, I don't want to say pleasure, but at least he got the closure as, as much closure as one could have imagined by being the person to hang the man who shot his one of his best friends. C- compare what you do know about the assassination and the trial to today and the publicity that you saw then compared to what kind of publicity you would get today in this uh, atmosphere that we're in. Uh, and, and give us your opinion of uh, the significance of that. I think it was it would be remarkably the same uh, for months, months and months. You would have broadsheets in America back during the Guito, dur- during Garfield's assassination and Guito's trial. You would have these uh, page long spreads of interviews with the best friends of the assassin from his childhood, uh, stories of people he had wronged over the course of his life, the many times he had tried to make it in one career and failed. This man, Guito, was a failure in all aspects of his life. And they covered over and over again, as many aspects of the assassin's story and life and writings, they published his bio, his personal memoir and his uh, the speeches that he had given on behalf of Garfield during the campaign season. 
you know, repeatedly over and over again over the course of uh, the better part of six months. And that struck me as being very similar, honestly, to how we've responded to some atrocities today in terms of the attention that we focus on uh, the perpetrators of these wrongdoings. The thing that I distinguish between the two, there are actually two things I distinguish. First is that Gito was the first person I could really find who had this popular obsession with, you know, obsession slash scorn mixture fall upon him. And so I think that might have magnified, if anything, the amount of popular attention foisted on that man. And then second, I think you can't really compare the media environments of the 19th century and the 21st without mentioning social media. So the cadence the cadence at which people are being exposed to these uh, these stories, these editorials, these these figures, it's much higher today. So that's the only other way I'd really distinguish between now and then. So go back to the beginning of all this for you. Uh, mm. When did you first know who James Garfield was? Uh, I first knew him because... Uh, a long time ago, I had read Destiny of the Republic, which was Candace Millard's excellent story about his assassination. Uh, you know, uh, excellent book, and the, the narrative is very compelling, and the research she did was phenomenal. And so that was my first exposure uh, to him as a figure. And then I promptly, I, I don't want to say I forgot about him, but his relevance faded. And then from a personal perspective, I kind of rediscovered him when I started doing this research into that time. And I saw that, again, that very familiar figure uh, present at the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, who was uh, key in the passage and amendment of the Ku Klux Klan Act during the Grant administration, who was behind the scenes settling the peaceful resolution of the disputed election of 1876. He was this... uh, this this uh, figure who just kept appearing over and over again, and he was described in contexts that I uh, that 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 brought back that memory of Millard's casting of him into my mind, and so that was when he entered my radar again. And then when I started diving into him personally more, the man began to be fleshed out, and I found him. Uh, and I just found a much more three-dimensional figure emerging, somebody who was incredibly complex and who participated in a remarkable stretch of our national history. As you probably know, uh, Edmund Morris had a rather interesting way of writing Mm. and researching and cataloging. Did you learn any of that from him? And even if you didn't, what was your own system of you know, following these five years where you had to do your research. How did you do it? Yes, he he did actually show me uh, how he cataloged his research. He, that was one of the things he was kind enough to share with me when I was uh, in Kent with him. He opened a file next to his uh, writing desk and you just saw practically a whole forest's worth of cue cards, <laughs> you know, emerge categorized very diligently by subject. And he explained it in a very straightforward way. He says, you know, I put subjects on the top and then I write every single piece of relevant information on each card. And then I, it was this very analog way of, uh, actually, I'd probably think about it as the best physical representation I could think of the digitization of a subject, you know, within our 
within our uh, computers and our databases that 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 is in principle what exactly what is going on. Uh, I could not quite replicate that. I tried to make full advantage of the uh, the, the resources available to me in this modern uh, time, but uh, you do you do inevitably accumulate a few. Uh, research habits and writing habits. You know, it, it's it's like a thumbprint. Every writer has their own methodology. Uh, for research, I created several master documents on uh, a cloud system in which I, and they were categorized by uh, letters, diary entries, letters to, from, uh, speeches, miscellaneous activity. And so from a variety of different archives that I visited, as long as I had one of my devices on me, I could maintain, I could build this thing from afar. And that proved uh, very helpful. And it also helped me uh, categorize things by keyword. So whenever I rediscovered a subject again, I could just search that and find that. And so I still have uh, all of that at my fingertips, kind of anywhere I am. So it was this nice way of, if you want to think about it this way, of pairing uh, these old analog research materials with a modern accessibility, which was nice. From a writing perspective, uh, I uh, one thing that Edmund did give me, actually, was an example, uh, a sample of his manuscript for, for, the, for his uh, latest biography, which was Edison. And this came out posthumously for him. But when I, when I met him, he was still writing it. And he gave me the sheet of paper that he then signed, and it was about 200 words. And it showed, and he wrote in the margins, you know, 4 a.m. to 4 p.m., August, whatever, you know, name the year. And uh, what that drove home to me was 200 words a day over 12 hours. Deliberation is key if you're doing, if you're working in that, in that, uh, at that quality, at that height. And so that, that was fresh in my mind when I began writing uh, was to focus on not not to get too concerned about word count. A lot of people, a lot of writers, as you know, they set uh, a word count for la basically in the absence of any better metric. Uh, I couldn't quite do that. It was, it, it was very much a case of attempting to pursue quality over quantity. Uh, and then there were, uh, this, sorry, this might be a longer diatribe than you were hoping for, but and then from a from a writing perspective, I had to conquer the uh, the uh, the the prevalence of digital distractions. I needed to create something that was isolated uh, from electronic electronic devices that could get me off my groove. And so I did all of my writing on a desktop that I still have before me, actually, and it's disconnected from the internet. And I also, before I start my writing every day, I actually have a safe. I have a timed safe that I put my phone and my tablets in, and then I spin the dial to however long I want to be alone with my my work. And uh, so I, and then I seal it and, and with, without any access to what's left inside. So uh, I create this isolated environment from from anything that could possibly distract me from my work and it's it's a way of conquering what i think is the uh millennial adhd phenomenon 
that we encounter so much. When did you decide to go C period, W period, Goodyear instead of yeah. your name? Yes, I did that because for I, I, I normally among my friends, I go by Charlie and I've always gone by Charlie, but I didn't think that that looked very good on the cover of a book. So I, I decided to defer to the initials and you might say it was my attempt to sound older than I really am. And so we'll see if that's successful or not. What are the chances that you will make your life one of writing? I think it's, I think writing will always be there. But it's very hard, and it's increasingly hard these days to have it be the sole source of uh, of, of income and of uh, of you know, vocation. Uh, so I don't. We'll we'll have to see if biography is going to continue to stimulate my interests enough to to hold me to that genre of writing. But it, it's possible that I'll have to diversify away from it down the road. Time is up, and the name of the book is President Garfield, From Radical to Unifier, and our guest has been C.W. Goodyear, who's based here in the Washington, D.C. area. Thank you, sir. Great. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.